there to the IAOMS community. My name is Deborah Zabladil, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the first episode of the IAOMS podcast series, Conversations in Rio. Joining me today is Dr. Deepak Krishnan from the United States. Dr. Krishnan, welcome first. And why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in the specialty, if you would. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, Deepak Krishnan. I have the uh, pride and privilege and the honor of uh, practicing and teaching at the University of Cincinnati. I've been there for about 11 years now. It's the first job I took, and it uh, uh, looks like it will be a, a long-term commitment. Um, I have uh, had the opportunity to become the program director, the residency program director of the training there, and it's uh, indeed it's been a privilege to do so. Uh, I have also had the privilege of having trained in several countries on multiple continents. I started my surgical training uh, in Bangalore in India as an apprentice with a past president of the IAOMS, uh, Kishore Nayak, and now the uh, immediately uh, elected uh, next vice president, Sanjeev Nair, when they were both starting their practices. And uh, from, then, uh, from there I went to uh, uh, the United States, where I trained with uh, another of the IAOMS leaders, Gali Gali, and uh, Steve Roser, um, and, uh, and subsequently ended up going to Canada uh, to do a fellowship training in uh, reconstructive surgery, orthopedic surgery, with uh, David Precious, who was also a, a prominent member of the IAOMS. And so I've had the opportunity to stand on shoulders of giants like those that uh, mentored me throughout rather unselfishly and uh, has brought me to my current uh, position in the specialty. Thank you so much. You have certainly learned from the best of the best. That's, uh, that's an incredible uh, tale of your career. So uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is um, if you were to look back and tell your younger self something um, about this profession, give, give your younger self some advice or words of wisdom, what might that be? So when I was in dental school, uh, if dental school was not a, my, my first choice for a profession, it's kind of a, it fell into place and made it happen. I thought the coolest person in the dental school was the orthodontist, and uh, I wanted to be an orth orthodontist. In fact, I, I kind of detested surgery. I, my oral surgery rotations were my, the time I did not look forward to, and uh, there were, uh, clinics that I found myself miserable in and I thought I had two left thumbs and just didn't, was too clumsy to do anything. And then that's where mentors showed up. That's where Kishore Nayak sat in our uh, office one day and said, uh, hey, I need, I need some help in the operating room. I want you to come along. And I went and I was immediately mesmerized. The opportunities that I've had with mentorship is, is un has been unparalleled. And it is these people that have really changed the face of my, my career. And if I was to look back at that and go, man, what I thought I would end up being and where I have gone is such a different trajectory. So to my younger self, I'd say that uh, don't presume, don't assume that this is where you will go and that's what you will do. In fact, my current job at the University of Cincinnati, Cincinnati is a little Midwestern town that is both geographically and culturally, very different from my own roots in southern India. And in my wildest of dreams, I had never assumed that I would run a teaching program in Cincinnati. And that's where I have been. So if you are under the impression as a young man or a young woman 
that this is what I'll do when I grow up. You know, you know, I had it all lined up. I went to dental school when I was barely 17. I graduated at 21 and I said, well, by 24 I'm going to be a master, whatever. And by 29 I'll be married and I'll have this. And I had it all planned out in my little town in southern India. And boy, did, was that wrong. <laughs> so things have gone entirely in an opposite direction. So don't assume and presume things. So perhaps they should just keep an open mind and, so, and really get yeah. as much experience as possible. Right. I can, I, can, I can reflect upon things that I consider my successes, and success is, is all professional in my mind, is, has been the mentorship that I have received. And, and that mentorship, and most importantly, a certain unselfishness to that mentorship. Mentorship is tricky. Mentorship is tricky because mentors are type A personalities typically that tend to uh, push you harder, push themselves harder. And when you see somebody that the rose below you rising above you, that could, by human nature, uh, become difficult. But I've been so fortunate to have mentors that have looked beyond that, that have kept pushing me higher and higher and uh, helped me achieve successes that that they haven't or they, they couldn't, opportunities that they hadn't had. And, and I'm hoping that I can be an unselfish mentor that way, push my juniors, my children, my professional children, and my uh, young brothers and sisters in those directions. That's wonderful. So what would you tell a young person who is saying, you know, I, I need a mentor, I'm looking for mentorship, perhaps outside of, um, you know, uh, the, the institution that right. they're working at or, um, you know, maybe even in a, a different area of the specialty. Yeah. How would, what, would, what advice would you give them in finding a mentor? So that's the, the tricky part is mentorship is different to a mentee and it is to a mentor. People look at it from different points of view depending on where they are in their career. Often to a young mentee it is, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and do a few things. Do you have my back? Do, you, do, you, do I have your support? Um, a mentor might be saying, don't go out on a limb and do something stupid. I have done that and I have failed and I can tell you, knowing you, that that's not a good idea and that may not be what the mentee wants to hear. So it can be different. So to a young person seeking a mentor, I would suggest that uh, uh, the same thing. Keep your mind open. Don't go there expecting what you want to hear. You might not hear what you want to hear. And when you hear it, uh, it might be jaded by the mentor's perception of things as well. So then what you need to take away is where you fit in that perception. Take that person's experience and wisdom into consideration. And, and, but everything is personal. It is, it, their life is not yours. What worked for them and may not work for them may not be the same for you. So take it with a pinch of salt and make it work in your world. Uh, take as much advice and recommendation from as many people as possible, but keep your mind open. Don't blindly follow anybody. That's very, very good advice. <clears throat> so one, uh, one other question I want to ask you before we talk about um, a, a scientific topic is um, where, from where you sit right now, in the years of experience you've had, what do you see as the future of this specialty? Hmm. I've always maintained that uh, the specialty is bound to change in my lifetime. And it is true about those that came before me as well. Is I, I feel that the patterns of oral and maxillofacial surgery is so varied throughout the world. 
even in the same regions of the world, there are people that limit their practices and just certain aspects or another. And I've always, always had this analogy of an oral maxillofacial surgeon being like a bat. Uh, it's a mammal that flies. So if you, if you work in a medical center like me and there's no other, no other dental professionals, you're perceived as, you know, I have urologists that'll come and ask me what the scope of my practice is and whether I brighten teeth. Uh, whereas I have dentists in my community that think I work in the hospital so I can read their mother-in-law's chest x-rays, you know. So while I can probably do both, I, 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 we are as a specialty truly a bat. We fly to the mammals and they tell us, wait, you flew here, you must be a bird because mammals don't fly. And if you, you go to the birds and they say, wait, you have babies, birds don't have babies, we lay eggs. So we don't fit in both and yet we do. And that, while it's a blessing, is also what will charge our, our specialty to change in the future. Patterns of practice will change and it'll be largely dictated by regional differences and unfortunately, probably due to reimbursement of services. Because we all, you know, at the end of the day, are trying to make a buck and whether we do it by service or whether we do it by other, other, uh, other promises, it doesn't matter. But reimbursement patterns in the different parts of the world will change the patterns of our practice. And that means that several of us will migrate into things that we find comfortable with and whether we will gravitate towards uh, head and neck oncology or limit our practices to simpler uh, dental surgery. It, it's bound to happen. And, but that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. If you look at parallel specialties like otolaryngology and ENT, if you go to one of their meetings, the otolaryngologist, um, so the otologist, the neuroautologist will go have a parallel symposium and only people who do that will go there. The head and neck surgeons will go do their own thing. The audiologists and the people that uh, deal with hearing will go do that and the voice control people will go do theirs and the people that simply take out tonsils and adenoids will do their own, pediatrics will do their own. And yet they still have an umbrella of being an ENT surgeon and so, it's not a bad thing. We can, we can morph into an all-encompassing kind of specialty. What I worry about, what I worry about is that uh, in all of that, so because we are rooted in dentistry in the majority of the world, the dentistry is now becoming a, a, a medical profession of, of, uh, of lifestyle choices lifestyle choices so that means that people would choose dentistry over medicine to still have the title of being a doctor to dabble in oral health care and still have a three-day week work week and and make a good living doing that so now oral maxillofacial surgery is an about turn to that I mean if I can sleep three nights a week being on call that's a good week so now you made a primary choice of profession based on your lifestyle expectations and now you have to about turn and do the exact opposite. Now on the medical side of things, if a medical student looked at an oral maxillofacial surgeon, they'll say, oh, this is kind of like ophthalmology or, you know, this is a better lifestyle than an orthopedic surgeon. So I suspect that we'll have more of an influx of medical students wanting a slightly different lifestyle getting into oral maxillofacial surgery. Oh, very interesting, yeah. very interesting yeah. perspective. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so one of your, uh, you know, uh, areas of specialty you mentioned is orthognathic surgery. Where do you see orthognathic surgery going in the future? Yeah. Orthognathic surgery is a fascinating experience. It's essentially 
three or four specific operations that basically change the person's face. It's, it's an internal permanent facelift that you know, you're changing the foundation of the soft tissues of the face. The reason why people get that is because of skeletal deformities in the face, and those are often genetic. There was uh, a study that was done a while ago uh, on, on mice with endometrial cancer that were treated with one particular chemotherapeutic agent. Serendipitously, there was one group of the test mice that had a craniofacial deformity that also received the same drug. It turns out that, that not only did the drug cure the cancer in the mice, but the next generation of that mouse did not have the craniofacial abnormality that the mother had. So it turns out that there might be a genetic marker that we can find for most of these dentofacial deformities and that we can essentially eliminate it from our population with new technology that's on the horizon with CRISPR and things like that. We are a suicidal profession. Medicine in general, dentistry in particular, we are always looking to eliminate diseases and conditions, the treatment of which gives us, you know, puts the bacon on the, on the table. And so it's really something that'll change once we have good gene therapy that we might be able to eliminate these things. And so as surgeons that need to change these faces, we may stop to exist. Uh, orthopedic surgery might be a primitive technique. Oh, that's <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Uh, what an interesting study. Well, think about French bulldogs. Uh, French bulldogs are bred to have strong jaws and, and bite forces and things like that. And actually, there's a large prevalence of cleft lip and palate surgery uh, cleft lip and palates in, in French Bulldogs. Is that right? Yeah, because somewhere along the way, one gene trips, and while the lower jaw grows, the upper jaw stops, and somehow it doesn't fuse, and all those things that we know as reasons of cleft lip and palate formation. So we've done this in reverse. We've been able to create anomalies. We should be able to treat anomalies, <laughs> and that too <laughs> will happen. Very interesting, and yeah, as you're saying, um, you know, that your, your reason to be is, uh, you know, doing these surgeries, right? Yeah, yeah. But that in the future, and you know, who knows if it will be 10 years, 20 years right. down the road, some of these things won't even be an issue because of uh, genetic um, advances. Correct, we might become irrelevant. <laughs> Very interesting. I'm sure you will then look for different ways to practice your, your, uh, your science and your, your craft. Um, so. Let's talk about surgical training, since you are an instructor. Um, have you seen surgical training change in your time as an instructor, and where do you think that may go for the rest of your career? Well, that's a fast-moving bullet train that is moving forward or in some direction. I'm not sure it's forward or backwards, but um, th this is where the human factor comes in. The learner is so different from how I was as a learner. I had to find books in libraries. My uh, residents currently have to be shown the library, and then um, most books that we have in the library is online, so it's redundant for them to go sit in the library. Plus, you can't take a Starbucks coffee there, so it's a useless place to go. Um, the every level of training is affected, and in, in a mostly a positive way. And technology is becoming ubiquitous. We don't even think twice about Googling something now. 
when that was impossible even 10 years ago. So went on rounds in the morning and I am going through, I have 12 residents and a couple of rotators and little uh, other students with me. And we may, might make rounds as a group and, and as I am going on asking questions about patient care to somebody, I can see in the back of my, the corner of my eye that the other person standing next to me is busy Googling the answers on their phone. So the surgical trainee has gotten savvy. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's only a bad thing if you perceive it as a bad thing. But uh, I think it's a savvier way. They are smarter learners. So what I've decided as a, as a trainee, a trainer now is we have reversed the role of the classroom. We don't teach in classrooms anymore. We come prepared to discuss things in classrooms. So everything's given ahead of time. We Socratically talk about things, which it's a mature learner you're dealing with anyway. The struggle that I have is, is inequalities in learning. And so what, when I pick articles for Journal Club for my unit, I simultaneously email it to uh, Kita Bonantaya in Bangalore so he can share the same with his residents there. And so hopefully they'll read it and, and things like that. So there's, there's the ability to do that. And, and there's also a disparity in the styles of teaching and learning that, that we'll need to adapt to the new technology. We're we quite blessed in the United States because we stand at the, uh, the, the, the highest peak of, of that. My bigger struggle is with what is called uh, the Kruger-Dunning effect. The Kruger-Dunning effect is particularly a generational thing uh, where most of my learners come in assuming they know everything, and which I don't think has changed over generations. I think the, the confident young Padawan always knew that he knew better than the Jedi Master himself. And you tend to go through those struggles until you realize, oh my god, I don't know a thing. Um, and, and, and I've been through that myself, and so I think it's an age-old conflict that we have. But it's harder now to resolve because their access to information is much better than what it used to be. And some of that information may not be correct. So, so to, to kind of bring the young trainee into the fold to understand how the, the, the practice of learning is to understand what is good information and what is bad information. Bad information is almost gossip, it's just noise. It doesn't have any relevance to patient care. At the end of the day, a trainer is not he or she who trains to train a young person to operate or, or have medical knowledge. It's all about how to deal with people. And the person who graduates last in their medical school is also called a doctor. But if he can talk well to people and practice ethically, then it doesn't matter that you graduated last from medical school, you make a professional that is successful in personal interactions. So that is the crux of surgical training, to teach people how to deal with other people, including patients. The rest of it is just easy. Do you think that that is widely um, taught? It, the, the communications issues and the you know, having those tough conversations, is that something that is part of the, the training experience yeah, so today across the world? The curriculum has adapted to such things and there are uh, medical schools that do that, dental schools I'm not aware of that do that. Uh, difficult conversations are easy to teach. There's a method to teaching that but there's no script to that. So you have to have a certain emotional intelligence to be able to do that. 
have very smart, nerdy people that cannot have a conversation but know how to do the surgery and know all about the surgery and uh, it's unlikely to such a person will struggle to build a practice. Um, not always, but generally. Uh, and, and the one that just has the popularity, uh, unfortunately, in this world, either with good looks or a good style of talking, tends to uh, rise to the top, <laughs> whether they knew their stuff or not. Uh, and that's, that's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. you know? Do you teach uh, emotional intelligence when you when no, you're but I I carefully choose for emotional intelligence. So in uh, in my interactions with students that are interested in oral maxillofacial surgery uh, and the interview process, um, we look for that. And the way you look for that is you engage the entire team to during that short interview process to look for signs of failure rather than signs of success. So the outliers are easy to catch when they don't interact well in the unit. And not that you could be an introvert that doesn't really engage but didn't do anything stupid, you know. So right. and and then the arrogance is easy to find. Uh, yes. the that's and the obliviousness of the of the of the depth of the perception of the specialty is easy to find. Um, yeah. and so that those are the things I look for. It's hard to teach emotional intelligence. It's almost innate in some people. Some people adapt to it quickly, but the way to teach that is through direct interactions on a on a daily basis, basis and patient care, and you Coaching, you model you right? model, you model, it's, and you model is the yeah. only way to. So you have to be on top of your own game. That is so true. Leader, know thyself. Leader, know thyself, and, and and lead from the front. Lead yeah. from the front. That too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Krishnan. This has been a very fascinating conversation, and I know our listeners around the world will enjoy listening to everything you've said, the great wisdom and advice, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.